everyone. Welcome to e-commerce straight talk. I'm Sam Sprague and I'm here with Jeet Banerjee and we're talking all things e-commerce. Hey Jeet, how's uh, how's life treating you? Life is good, man. Can't complain. How about yourself? No, oh, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. I mean, we're already into August of 2021, which is uh, crazy in and of itself. I remember last year was, it felt like five years. So I'm, I'm glad we're getting through this. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about yourself. Uh, you've, you've created and ran and sold a handful of different e-commerce uh, companies. So why don't you start there? Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of got into the e-commerce space about four years ago. Um, and initially I started out in the Amazon vertical. So I kind of started like Amazon FBA stores and stuff like that. And really the reason why I got into uh, e-commerce back then was I just knew, you know, I could just tell and see that there was going to be a transition in the way that people shop over a period of time. Obviously things like, you know, COVID last year really expedited, you know, the growth in the e-commerce space and stuff like that. But yeah, I kind of identified that. Um, I've always kind of been, you know, a marketer and brander uh, by nature. So e-commerce seemed like a great fit for me to dive into and to be utilizing my skills. So yeah, I started from Amazon, then slowly kind of graduated and moved into like drop shipping. Uh, initially was drop shipping from China, AliExpress, Alibaba, all that stuff, like most of 2018. And then after that, you know, I kind of found some flaws with that model. Obviously, the long shipping times, the poor product quality, not being able to vet things or white label and stuff like that. And so um, I always loved the concept of drop shipping just because, you know, it seemed so hassle free. I could focus on the branding and marketing and somebody else could handle the supply chain, logistics, manufacturing. So I decided to just take that model and approach, you know, U.S. suppliers, Canadian suppliers, European suppliers that were making good high-end products and from there uh, you know I was able to create a few different brands sell some brands and kind of really get my feet wet uh, with all that cool cool yeah it's it's sort of interesting to see you know especially um, over the past I would say like year and a half two years this this sort of negative connotation around drop shipping mm-hmm. even though we know major corporations do it all the time especially to prove you know, product market fit and things of that nature. Um, when, you know, when you started out in that world, um, wh- I guess, what was the biggest difference between doing drop shipping and then and then uh, warehousing and running all your own product? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest difference for me was kind of like where my time investment would go. It seemed like, you know, if I was to do it the warehousing route, you know, it'd be almost like a 50-50 uh, split of my time. And then I think just from a standpoint of, you know, initial capital investment and, you know, some the resources and the staff and infrastructure that I would need was just far more significant. And, you know, being that I was a brander marketer uh, by nature, and I just felt like, you know, if I put 100% of my attention there, and didn't have to worry about supply chain logistics, things like that, I would really be able to grow the business faster, achieve much larger numbers, you know, reach the masses, things like that. So, that was kind of the biggest thing for me is I was just kind of looking at, you know, what the risk, to, or what the reward ratio would be if I went one way versus the other. And yeah, sure, you know, I'd probably be able to get lower costs and maybe get products out the door for cheaper. But when I look at the opposite spectrum of it, what is the gain? So that might be like, you know, the disadvantage, but the advantage was, you know, I'm able to double down, maybe triple down on my marketing branding. And if I'm doing, you know, two to three X, the number of volume, a 10% in margin is not really going to be, uh, you know, a key cog in the whole thing. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And so you started, uh, you started out with Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you, 
what other channels did you grow to from there? Yeah, so I kind of, what I did was I would kind of, uh, being an entrepreneur, I've got like ADD brain, so I've always see like new brands, new products, <laughs> new concepts that really excite me, so I yeah. jump from thing to thing. So on Amazon, I actually launched a supplements company. Um, I wanted to kind of scale that out of Amazon, and I tried like Shopify website and all that stuff, but the main issue that I had with that was that, you know, I really uh, had a tough time getting through like, you know, Facebook and Google and stuff like that, being that it was a supplement brand. It was also like 2017, 2018. There's a lot of negative stigma around it. So I kind of exclusively kept it that that brand on the Amazon channel. And then from there, I kind of transitioned into, uh, you know, some other drop shipping brands and stuff like that that I created uh, that, you know, primarily those brands I'm using Shopify. That's like my main channel. Played a little bit with yeah. like Etsy and some other uh, channels like Amazon and stuff, but I just kind of found it, you know, just being able to control my user data is so valuable, being able to, you know, retarget them, build lifetime customer value, all that stuff. So I'm now a big proponent of, you know, if I'm starting anything, I want to do it through my own channel of Shopify, essentially, and my own website. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest issue, especially with Amazon, is they own your customer. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't own them, um, which is very frustrating, right? Yeah. And especially you see a lot of, you know, D2C brands trying to, to grow to other channels um, and and sort of gather more of that data on that customer. And with the latest iOS issues, it hasn't made it very easy, but yeah. it, it is interesting to see sort of that shift, especially over the past, I would say, you know, 12 to 18 months. Um, obviously, Amazon grew like gangbusters last year, right? They just took over. Yeah. Um, but... It's it's interesting to see like you know your regular Joe, uh, e-commerce store brand owners, do to see you know retail, trying to to break into their own channels, right? Mm -hmm. um, when when looking at like products to to take to market and scale, like what was your what's your process going through that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple things that I really look at, but the biggest thing that I've kind of like the biggest thing I would say the underlying factor is you never know until you know. So I'm a big proponent of like just testing yeah. anything and everything. And that's like, you know, uh, I, I think there's a Jay-Z quote where he kind of says like, you know, men lie, women lie, but numbers don't. And so at the end of the day, I'm mm -hmm. a big numbers and analytics guy because I've kind of been there where, you know, I look at a product and then I'd go ask my family and friends like, hey, would you guys buy this? What do you think about this? And they're always like, yeah, yeah, this is great, whatever. And then, you know, when it comes time to collect money off of it or run some ads on it, nobody wants to give you any money. And that's when, you know, really comes down to the numbers. But uh, so, yeah, ultimately, I tell everyone, you know, test everything no matter what. But some of the biggest things that I look for is, you know, I'm always looking for, um, you know, who is my ideal customer? I love to paint like a customer avatar in a picture. And the easier it is for me to paint that avatar, essentially, the more detailed I can make that avatar the more comfortable I feel with taking a product like that. Um, the second thing I really like to do and get involved with is get involved in products that I truly understand. Like either I'm a customer or I know someone close to me that's a customer because it just makes the yeah. marketing and branding process so much easier. So, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, they have to sell every possible product out there or that, you know, there's a limitation of like, you know, what can be sold, but I've kind of found it the opposite way that, you know, there's products in abundance and you should be more careful with what you choose and why you choose it. And the less homework and the less learning curve there is because you already know the product and the more you can focus on, you know, the branding and the marketing and the paid media buying and stuff like that, the better it is. And probably the third and final thing that I would say is, you know, 
I'm looking for new, unique, innovative products and concepts. I think that is something that is really big. Um, a lot of people kind of fall into the trap of, you know, either drop shipping or selling products that have been oversold and overdone for three to four years. And for me, you know, those products can be very good, but you got to have some sort of iteration or something like that if you're trying to break through the market now. So one of the things that, you know, I used to do early on was I would look at really popular products and I would read all the negative reviews on them. And then I would basically approach manufacturers and suppliers and be like, hey, can you fix XYZ problem on this product here? And whoever would be willing to do it, I'd be like, okay, cool, let's start, you know, drop shipping with that. And I'd kind of sell it as like, you know, a version 2.0. So it's just all about finding like gaps and nicks in the market and how you just kind of can capitalize on it. Yeah, interesting. No, I mean, it makes total sense. I think, I think the biggest, um, issue and even even for us I, I would say the last you know before 2020 before the pandemic hit um life was good right mm -hmm. uh, you could you could grow a company it, it was it was good obviously it was getting to the point where omni channel was becoming more prevalent especially 2019 right running solo channels really wasn't doing much but i i distinctly remember having so many conversations in 2017 2018 with brands with crazy products right and it's like some inventor or someone had this great idea for this product and they and it fit a need for them and the conversation always got to is there a product market fit and i know a lot of folks uh, uh struggle with that because especially as an entrepreneur you also have this other um uh, voice in the back of your head that says don't quit you know keep persevering push through mm -hmm. and it's like well at some point you gotta pivot you know <clears throat> Um, when when looking, you know, for manufacturers and suppliers, um, are there, you know, whether it's here in the U.S., South America, uh, uh, Southeast Asia, or China, um, where do you tend to, to sort of veer towards? Yeah, absolutely. So I typically tend to veer towards the USA first and foremost, just because from every aspect, it's kind of easier for me if I want to, you know, because I tr try to truly build like relationships with these suppliers and stuff like that. So if I want to go check out their facility, mm -hmm. have face to face meetings, stuff like that, being that I'm in the US, it makes it easier. So that's kind of one thing I really base it off of. And the second thing I would say that's really important is just understanding where is your primary customer going to be located at? So if your primary customer is going to be located in Europe, you probably want to find a European supplier just because from um, a fulfillment standpoint and a shipping time standpoint, it's going to be a much smoother process, you know, and that was kind of the, one of the biggest reasons why I had so much trouble with China was, you know, shipping an item from China to the U.S. customer was taking minimum two weeks, sometimes three weeks. And then during COVID, there were times where it was taking like 12 weeks to do. And it's just, you know, it's not a great customer experience because, you know, you're especially nowadays with Amazon getting items shipped to you almost same day, like the bar is set really high. So that's, you know, I'm always thinking about the customer experience, the user experience. So that's kind of the two biggest things that I base it off of. Uh, definitely, you know, my personal location and then where would my ideal customer be located at or the bulk of my customers so that I can create a smooth uh, and efficient uh, shipping process for them. Cool. Now, now thinking about that and then um, thinking about, you know, if, if I was someone new who's looking into, you know, create, go diving into e-commerce, create my own store, um, you know, looking for products and what I should start testing with first, what would you say is, because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing through, through the years and doing this over and over again in a handful of different times and being successful with it, that you sort of have a, a, a simplified process for starting 
mm-hmm. something out, right? Like a, a, a new project. What would, I guess if you could give some advice to someone who's just starting out, what would that be? Yeah, absolutely. So um, before I was into e-commerce, I kind of came from like the tech startup world. And there's an amazing book that I actually read. It was called uh, basically it's called it's an MVP model, which is known as like a minimum viable product model. And that's like how basically, you know, some of the greatest uh, inventors and venture capitalists out in Silicon Valley recommend everyone to start their uh, company or their product or their tech company, whatever it is. And so I kind of adapted that same model into e-commerce and it ended up working very, very well. And I remember one of the biggest examples that they say in that book is if you take a car and you strip out all of the stuff out of that car, the real core product of the car is essentially you need four wheels, you need a steering wheel, you need an engine, and you just need a transmission that's going to, you know, get you from place A to place B. The air conditioner, the automatic windows, the leather seats, all of that stuff is things that were added decades and decades later, but it's not the, you know, like if you just had leather seats, but nothing else, people aren't buying the car because it doesn't solve the problem, right? So that's kind of the biggest thing that I try to do when testing a product is at the end of the day, if if I'm testing a product, the product's got to be a winner, right? People have to love the product. You know, I'm not so worried about, you know, the box that the product comes in, or I'm not worried about, you know, um, having certain shipping labels and certain things that, you know, you can touch up and make really nice. Even from a website standpoint, I'm not so worried about like, you know, having like an extravagant website talking about our about us and, you know, uh, you know, talking about how our pages or how our website and company works, where it originated from, stuff like that is not really a priority for me. All the focus is on the product, right? If like I'm a true believer in e-commerce that products really sell themselves. So as long as you know, you present the product uh, to the audience, you have a good offer and you have good information about the product and there's trust and credibility, you should be able to, you know, sell that product without any issues. And then obviously you can increase conversions and do so many other things just like they did with the car to, you know, upcharge the car and to make it more appealing to the masses. But at the core of it, just try to launch and push your product and let the product speak for itself. Because if your product never sells and you've got to do all this other fluff around it, I guarantee you it's not going to save the product at the end of the day. Like people don't care what box the product comes in if they don't like the product itself. Yeah, no, I I, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. It's... um there have been so many times and I, and I sort of have this mantra mm-hmm. where if you look at your priorities of success, it's product market creative, right? Yeah. You have an awesome product. It fits right in the market. How then do you get that conversation started with the consumer? Right. And so product market creative and, and, and not only that, but we've also seen where there's awesome products and the company's doing okay, mm-hmm. but then you have the leadership involved that's just screwing the pooch. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting dynamic when you see that. It's kind of sad, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so, I mean, th- those are prime examples of like the product is literally selling itself um, to, a, to a certain extent. Obviously, scalability is always a question. Now, when, um, so, so, I mean, it sounds like you have, uh, you like, like all of us, you know, when we start, becoming entrepreneurs i think the, the biggest thing initially is like um all these failures that occur mm-hmm. right and 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 everyone's like oh this guy was an overnight success yeah he, he was an overnight success after 10 years of failing yeah like that's what it takes right and it's like you sort of have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and you just have to accept that hey there are these failures but that's cool we're not just going to like dwell on them right 
need be, even if you have a giant failure, hey, maybe I'll take the afternoon and, you know, and, and cry some tears and, and sit in the bath with my own tears. And then the next day, I'm okay, I'm back on it, right? Um, so it sounds like there's, there's some little things in there, like you're saying, hey, don't worry too much about the website. Um, are there, is there anything else that you can really pull from, like, that you've learned where you're like, I'm not even worrying about this until, you know, 12 months down the line, 24 months down the line, or, like, I, I've already known from this not to get, not to dive too far into here. Is there anything like that that, that you've noticed? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest thing that I've noticed is that people kind of have, like, this stigma or this fear of launching a website that looks too naked, for example, from like a product standpoint. So for me, one of the biggest things I learned early on was that product makes all the difference, right? And sometimes on a pro- on a website where you've got 200 products, you might have three products that do like 90, 95% of your revenue, right? And I think one of the biggest things I notice a lot of newer e-commerce entrepreneurs make the big mistake of is that they know what product they want to advertise. They know what their winning product and their bread and butter is, but they still want to launch with 20 other products. And now they're spending all this time, you know, having to source these products, add SKUs, set them up on their website, all this kind of stuff. And the worst thing that they're kind of doing is that they're kind of losing their number one product in a cloud of other products. And so one of the biggest things that I've realized is sell as much of your product as you can. Like, don't worry about adding other products and stuff. Only once you start to see maybe your CPAs are dwindling down or your conversion rates dwindling down, stuff like that okay, now it's time to go to the drawing board and see what can we do to get those numbers back up now that we've kind of, you know, monetized and capitalized as much as we could on this one product. You know, that's when I look into adding upsells, downsells. Usually it ends up happening, you know, six to 12 months after, Uh, you know, upsells, downsells, what other products can I launch and all that kind of stuff. And this helps a lot for two big reasons that I've learned. So in the beginning, when you're adding products, you're really just guessing, right? But if I have one product that's crushing it and I've got six months of customers, let's say I've got 50,000 customers in my pipeline, I can send them one email, ask them, hey, what do you guys want to see us launch next? And now I'm getting actual validated customer feedback from the same people that I'm going to pitch the next products to telling us, hey, I think you guys shouldn't do this, this and that. And now instead of us guessing, we're actually taking more educated guesses and following, you know, basically following the money. And the second thing that I've noticed is that, you know, if you sell 50,000 products, it's a lot easier to negotiate with your supplier to make new products. Suppliers hear it every single day where someone comes to them and they're like, hey, I want 50 products for you guys to make and I need you guys to drop ship this. And manufacturers and suppliers, it's not worth it to them unless, you know, again, you got to show them the money, right? But in a situation where you've sold 50,000 products, they know what you can do. There's credibility and trust there. You ask them to make anything, they'll probably go above and beyond to make you even more products with even more complications and things like that. So that's probably the biggest mistake that I see. And I think that's, you know, that's like the way that I've always approached it is just focus on the one product and then, you know, hit a home run with that and then see what else you got to do afterwards. That's interesting. And, and, and what you just said reminds me of uh, the book uh, Ready, Fire, Aim by Michael Masterson. Granted, you know, when he initially wrote this, this was like in the 90s, moving moving into the dot-com era. Um, so, you know, I, I really enjoyed that book. I think I've read it like three or four different times. Mm-hmm. But he even talks about, hey, you know, when you're growing even in retail, it's like you, you take one product, you go to a million bucks. Okay, cool. Second product, go to a million bucks. And he's talking about over a seven-year period how you could create a, a, a business and then basically sell it for, you know, five, six X. Um, it's, it's valuation. Um, 
so I'm I'm curious now too, talking about um, that and and you know building your your e-commerce stores and then also selling them. Um, you know, some advice in, in getting a, a, a store prepared to be sold. Um, and, and not only that, but especially for, you know, valuation and not only getting evaluation, but then maintaining that valuation. Is there any advice you'd give in to, to anyone there? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few things that I would say. I think the first thing, if you ever want to sell your business, that's like kind of like your end goal. From day one, I cannot recommend how important it is to have like clean books. So trying to document everything from like a financial standpoint, you know, making sure your books are clean, accounting is done uh, very well, all that stuff is very important. Uh, the second thing that I would also recommend is document everything. So start creating SOPs and stuff like that because when you get to the point where you want to sell, that's what every buyer is going to want. So the easier you can make a transition process between you and a new buyer, the better it is. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned from selling, you know, I made the mistake on my first one, make sure not to make it on the second one, is we just document everything, right? And we just create systems and mm -hmm. structure and really trying to create an uh, autonomous system within the company too. So, you know, if you have managers and stuff like that, really learning to delegate and let go and seeing if the company can run without you. Because if it can run without you, then it becomes very appealing to another buyer, another third party. So those are two things that I definitely, uh, you know, recommend. And then I think the third thing, which is pretty obvious, but I think it's heavily understated and undervalued, is you got to focus on profit. I think at the end of the day, you know, it's more profit is more important than anything else. I think revenue is truly a vanity metric. And I've kind of seen this firsthand, uh, just, you know, being on the board of companies and stuff like that. Oftentimes you'll see, you know, a company might have 20 million in revenue. They're only making, you know, $500,000 a year. And then you might have company B, which is making 3 million a year, but netting, you know, 1.2 million. Guess which one's getting acquired yeah. for more? It's the company that's making three million revenue, right? And so that's like the biggest thing that I sometimes recommend people because sometimes, you know, you just become so infatuated with the numbers and the Shopify sales dashboard that it's just like, let's pump, 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 pump. But at the end of the day, you really want to do your uh, bookkeeping every single month so you can see what you're netting, where you're losing money at, and kind of really, you know, uh, create a profitable business because that's what people are looking for profitable businesses with cash flow. Yeah, interesting. And and so, what would you say? Like, what's your goal, sort of, when you're when you're creating um, this new company or whatever? That um, you, like your your margins, like your profit margins. Like, what are you shooting for? Yeah, ideally, I think anything in that thirty to thirty five percent range is very very good. And then, if on top of that, you can really start to build on that lifetime customer value. Uh, I think those are the mm -hmm. two key metrics that are you know really really solid. Because as you continue to build on that lifetime customer value, you can probably get from 30 to 35% early, probably closer to like 45 to 50% later if you know, you're doing all the right things and pushing all the right levers for a few years. So yeah, that's usually ideally where I like to be. And now for you specifically, when you're looking to build and then sell a company, is it, um, are you basing it on like time? Hey, I'm going to build this thing for a year and then sell it. Or are you basing it more on like revenue and profit where you're like, I, as soon as I get this thing to 5 million, then I'm going to sell it? Is there... Anything like that or, or how do you sort of operate? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, just kind of a feel that I've gotten in the market is that, you know, if you try to sell a business too early, you're kind of short selling yourself because there isn't as much uh, longevity in the history of your books and stuff. So you're going to end up getting a lower offer. So I traditionally mm -hmm. like to try to sell a business within 16 to 24 months because that's kind of especially if you have consistent results for that period of time that really gives, you know, 
confidence to buyers and stuff like that. Because there's a lot of companies out there that, you know, they can kill it for three to six months. And, you know, buyers are kind of aware of that. Brokers are too. Uh, even like, you know, people that are trying to get SBA funding, stuff like that, going through underwriting, it's probably not going to happen on a business that's, you know, been out three to six months showing good revenue. So ideally, I like to go for like, you know, 16 to 24 months of consistent, just, you know, growth, revenue, numbers, stability, all that stuff. Um, and yeah, that's usually the magic number. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and and even within that too, I think one of the things you're thinking about is the multiplier, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, like if I grow a company to 100,000, make 100,000 in profit, okay, cool, like that sounds great, especially even at 30% margin, maybe my multiplier is like you know, 1.2 to 1.6, and then if I get it over that million mark, maybe it jumps to three, right? Totally dependent on the industry, the business, like who you're selling it to, obviously mm-hmm. too, but, um, so I'm curious as if you've seen like anything like that where it's it's sort of following this pattern um, that you that you've sort of seen for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's very interesting when it comes to um, multipliers and stuff like that. I think the biggest thing that I've kind of realized that determines the multiplier that people are willing to pay is it really comes down to the banks, right? So like right now, for example, for anyone that's trying to sell a business, I think it's the best time to sell a business because buyers can literally get very, very large chunks of money from SBA and banks and stuff like that for dirt cheap interest rates, right? So at the end of the day, the way I look Mm -hmm. at it, no one really wants to put their own cash, even if they have the cash, to buy a business or to acquire an asset or whatever it is. If you can get something at like a one, two, nine interest rate and acquire a new asset and put no capital out of pocket, that's an exceptional place to be. So one of the biggest things that you want to look at from like a multiplier standpoint and things like that that are very interesting is A, the current interest rate for, you know, business financing and loans and stuff like that really affect the multipliers. So right now I'm probably like, you know, from like middle of last year till now, you're probably getting a much higher multiple than you would have, let's say, 2018 or 2019, just because there's so much funding available. And then the second thing that a lot of people really base their multipliers on as well, if you're going like the whole bank route is, you know, based on um, underwriting and what the bankers and the loan guys and those guys kind of are are valuing businesses. Um, I've seen it dramatically change. It goes up and down, back and forth, all that stuff. Right now it's at the higher end. Like I think there's a lot of like three to five X multiple stuff going on right now. I think like two, two and a half years ago, it was closer to like 1.5 X, for example. So it just really varies. But yeah, if you can capitalize on good opportune timing, that's that's always the best way to go. And, and you know, as a seller trying to find buyers, is there, uh, you know, a process you, that you've found that works for you? Or is, is it difficult? Is it it's pretty simple to find buyers? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two ways that you can go about it. So when I've sold companies, you know, um, primarily when I've sold e-commerce companies, I tend to use brokers. Uh, just because these guys tend to have a very large network of people that are looking to acquire, you know, e-commerce assets, businesses, stuff like that. So that's always tended to work very well for me. So using a broker, having the broker reach out and utilize their network to find, you know, potential uh, candidates. And then when I sold my first company, uh, I actually had a buyer that reached out to us and just showed interest in our company and our business and our project. And that's how it happened. So in that, in that situation, you know, I wasn't even looking to sell. It was more so something just kind of fell upon my lap. So, yeah, those are probably the, you know, I think the best way if someone is looking to sell as a seller is, yeah, reach out to different brokers that are well-versed in the e-commerce space. And the biggest thing you're looking for is people are brokers that have an extensive network of buyers. That's what that's what's really important. And, and, And on the opposite end of the spectrum, 
you know, you as a seller and thinking about, hey, if I was buying another company, like I have, I have this e-commerce store and it's running, it's it's running really well. We know our market. We sort of created the community. Like we've we've been growing, but we want to grow that customer base too. And maybe an easy way for me to do that is to buy another brand. Mm-hmm. Um, what what sort of uh, uh, things would I look for to to determine that? Hey, this is going to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing, if I was on the other spectrum um, as a buyer that I'd be looking for is probably a, probably companies and e-commerce businesses that have like underutilized opportunities. So for example, you know, like me as a, as an e-commerce entrepreneur, I kind of know what my specialties are and, you know, things that I'm good at. So I'm good at the media buying side. I'm really good at, you know, generating recurring revenue, generating, uh, you know, higher lifetime customer values, finding ways to increase average order values, things like that. And so, you know, that'd be the biggest thing that I would look for. So something that kind of works in my head as a buyer is, okay, if I acquire this business, how much of the money that I spend to acquire this business can I recoup in three months without spending additional marketing dollars? Like I'm talking about if this company has 100,000 customers, how much can I further monetize these 100,000 customers in an untapped way that these guys haven't to recoup my investment, right? So let's say I'm spending a million bucks on a business and these guys have 100,000 customers and I come out to the dollar value based on a concept, you know, I might be able to make 350 per customer. And now I can execute that and I'm telling myself, okay, within three months, I can get 35% of my initial investment back. That to me sounds pretty good. You know what I mean? So that's kind of the yeah. way that I look to purchase businesses and stuff like that. If I if I'm ever in the space or you know uh, investing, even from an investor standpoint, things like that. That's that's my key metric is how quickly can I acquire as much of my initial investment as possible, given what I already have that they haven't done or utilized. Interesting. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense. Um, and I'm curious to know sort of what the, like you're saying, like the, the due to funding being out there and, and how much sort of consolidation is happening in the market. Um, because obviously mm-hmm. you do have a lot of smaller companies that were sort of got hit really hard mm-hmm. uh, during the pandemic. And I knew, I, I know a lot of them either A, were just threw up their hands and said, well, this is it for us. And others were like, okay, how can we sell? Right. And so there was, mm-hmm. there was a lot of uh, companies out there getting great deals because of that. Um, now, now, look, talking about like media buying, right? Because um, that's really the space that you and I both um, have a lot of experience in. Over the past year and into this this the summer of 2021 here, um, more especially with these, you know, the iOS changes and uh, Apple's, you know, privacy. How has that affected your your businesses? Yeah, absolutely. I think the best way to explain that is that, you know, it's kind of forced uh, me as a media buyer and business owner to really get out of my comfort zone and really, you know, prioritize getting better. Because I think, you know, I think all that the iOS updates and stuff like that did is that it just made an already competitive space even more competitive. But at the end of the day, you know, I think the I think the best in the space is still going to be, you know, getting the results that they were getting before and stuff like that. So, you know, before that, I was probably not more like cruise control mode where it's like, ah, I know what I'm doing, you know, just keep yeah. running, keep running, keep running. And then it was like, boom, you know, like CPAs just went up 50% for me. And it was like, okay, whoa, you know, like I got to go back to the drawing board. Let me continue to innovate, iterate, improve, you know, and that, that's kind of the biggest thing that I got out of the whole iOS updates. And it was definitely like a journey and a progress, but you know, and I still wouldn't say I'm there all the way, but you know, we're, we're, 
we're getting through it. And I think the biggest thing that it's really tested me on is, you know, create better offers, think of better angles, keep innovating your creative. How can you come up with better products? You know, what, what other offers can you do to increase average order value? So it, it's been a fun challenge, so to speak. But yeah, I think that's, that's, that's going to be the big thing that I'm seeing out of it. It's, it's very interesting, you know, and, and, and I, and I like what you said there about, you know, um, we still know that these platforms are are the way to go. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to, you know, we have we have a handful of different uh, agency partners. Um, one of them does print, TV, radio, and, and um, I even know another guy who does, he does billboard advertising. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a conversation with them and it was like, you know, hey, how's the year going? Like, you know, especially over the pandemic must be tough, you know, because e-commerce has been growing like crazy. Mm-hmm. And he was like, actually, it's been probably the best years of our business. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's interesting to see so many people taking dollars away from channels that they knew were working before, right? Like like Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, and, and Amazon, and, and, and even in retail, and pushing them more towards these old, reliable sources, right? Like uh, radio and print and billboards. And it's fascinating to me. Um, even even direct mail is getting you know a boost, mm-hmm. and it's like <laughs> it wasn't working before, but now since your attribution is a little distorted, you're gonna say that oh this is gonna work now. Like it's it's so wild to me that it's sort of human nature to mm-hmm. just go back to the, the the devil you know right. It's <laughs> it's interesting, and now thinking about that, and then also you know I know, I know you spoke a lot about Amazon. Um, are there specific channels that you look to go on first when starting a new company? Nowadays, for me, it's just all Shopify. Like that's the that's primarily the only and sole channel I like to go through, and that's just because you know I kind of I kind of quickly realized like it, the biggest thing that I realized about Amazon over the years is a I got to see none of the data of my customers, right? And especially mm-hmm. being in the supplement space, I have so much recurring opportunity, so many ways to get more lifetime revenue, stuff like that. But I was just unable to do that on Amazon because Amazon controls everything. And then even worse, about a year after, I started noticing that Amazon would take products like this even happened to me where I had a supplement that was just killing it. It was selling really well, all that stuff. And then a couple months later, I see the same supplement with the same ingredients. The only difference is it's got an Amazon label because Amazon basics and they're ranking above me. And no matter how much money I spend. I can't beat Amazon on Amazon. You know what I mean? Like they, they basically yeah. control that algorithm and system. So that's when I kind of realized that, you know, what the biggest uh, negative about being on these other platforms was, is that, you know, you have no control, you have no like security even. So why continue to allow them to, you know, do this to you when you can do the same thing just on your own platform, on your own infrastructure where you have the data control, you control everything. And so for me, it's all about having a fair fight. And I think I get a fair fight on Shopify, whereas on Amazon and some of these other platforms, if they decide they don't want to have a fair fight, I can't do anything about it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see Amazon, how they're um, the, the shift initially from the marketplace mm-hmm. model to like this, you know, I don't even know what the percentage is. I'd imagine it's probably somewhere between uh, 50 to 60 percent white labeling, right? Because mm-hmm. they could see the metrics and they're like, why wouldn't we just create yeah. this? And then. Just, just owning that monopoly, and then you know the fact that they hire more lobbyists than there are politicians, <laughs> sort of keeps keeps them going. You know, and it, and if we look back in time, a hundred years ago in the 1920s, you had uh, the great AMPT company, 
which same thing, you know, you had you had Sears Roebuck, you had Montgomery Ward, and everything went through a catalog. And initially, they were a marketplace sort of catalog, right? And they got successful. And then what did they do in the 20s? They then busted out and started white labeling all these products that they knew were selling really well from their catalog, right? And then it wasn't until about 1930 where they got completely disbanded and stripped away because the U.S. government came after them for antitrust issues. But, yeah, that's the biggest problem with Amazon in it. And, it, and I think I've talked about this so many times on this podcast, like the – the biggest issue with them just controlling so much of the market, and on top of that, not even being a marketplace really anymore, mm-hmm. right? And and controlling that customer. And I think most people would rather not shop at Amazon if possible. It's just the level of convenience is there. Yeah. Um, oh. Yeah, it, it, and so thinking about that, and then, you know, talking more about media buying, when you look at you know starting to dive into the 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 media buying operation do you you generally go to like social first like facebook and instagram those some of the the first platforms you really jump on yeah absolutely so yeah i would say facebook and instagram are probably my absolute favorites to just jump in a start on and i think it's because you know you can really test with very low budgets on facebook and really get a feel for things like i think there's some other ad platforms and stuff where you kind of test with smaller budgets but it doesn't work as well or it's not as effective but i think you know, Facebook, if you want to get a very good picture of where do you stand with your current angles, offers, products, uh, you know, uh, conversions, all that stuff, you can do ads as low as like $5 a day. You know what I mean? Like that's that's kind of how I started on Facebook, right, with $5 a day budgets and slowly kind of grinding my way up and figuring out, you know, what offers, what combinations, what audiences work. So, yeah, I love getting started on Facebook and Instagram. And, and are there any trends that you're sort of seeing on your end from like 2021? Obviously, 2020 is over and there's a lot that happened and a lot of purchase patterns and behaviors that shifted and changed over that period. And even into this year, that's changed too. But are there any trends that you're sort of looking at moving into like Q4 and then Q1 of 2022? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest trend that I've kind of noticed, and this is kind of going out of 2020 into 2021, was that the offers that really work really long-term that I've seen really tend to perform very, very well on as broad of audiences as you can get, right? So when I first started on Facebook and stuff like that, it was always like, you know, if I was to do an ad with no interest, for example, I would be, you know, just burning money. And then I slowly started seeing how good that their algorithm truly was. And the more that you allow their algorithm to operate as its own entity and just kind of like, you know, not put a bunch of restrictions on them, how good it gets. Uh, that was very, very interesting for me. So kind of one of the biggest things that I like to do early on nowadays is I like to test, you know, I'm kind of able to get a very good feel for the longevity of an offer and a product and stuff like that right off the bat by testing um on very broad audiences because sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. I'll test on a very niche audience and then I'll try to go broad from there. And it just doesn't end up working, whereas vice versa, when I test on a broad audience, if it doesn't end up working nowadays, I'll kind of just, you know, cut that offer, cut that angle, and then move to the next one. But if it starts to work, then I'm like, okay, you know what, I'm on to something. And I think that's been the biggest challenge that I've seen with Facebook, especially with iOS updates and stuff, is like the longevity of something lasting has really shortened. I feel like before, you know, I could do like a niche audience of 1.5 million people and that offer could last months uh, with a reasonable sized budget. And then I think as iOS 14 and stuff kicked in, now it's like a 1.5 million audience. Man, I'll be lucky if that lasts me like three to five days before it starts to you know, really start to hamper in results. So I think 
I think, and I think this is like across the board for all the social media platforms. I think they are understanding like, you know, we are, our, our robotic systems and AI technology, it makes for better advertisers than actual humans and people do. So the more that they can take control of that, I think the more, you know, the better results you're going to see. And I think it's just going to come down to, you know, the smart marketers are just going to like slowly say, Hey, you know, take control, take control. We're just going to feed the machine kind of thing rather than controlling the machine. Yeah, and it's and it's very interesting to see sort of uh, the shifts, um, like you're saying, some more more broad audiences. But not only that, but it seems to be too. Every brand is is exponentially more different mm-hmm. than they were before, right? If if you take me back 12 months, I could do the same strategy with just about everyone, and it worked, right? And there's small little things that you would shift and change, but for the most part, it all worked. Mm-hmm. Now. It's every brand is every account's different. Everything is so different. You know, some some accounts might you might run ABO and that works amazing. If as soon as you run CBO, it just dies. Yeah. Right. Others, you know, you use interest groups which we haven't used in years, and now we're using them all over the place. Right. Um, more broad audiences, and then being able to to dissect those broad audiences as well, and even even stacking your retargeting because we know with the attribution levels and the the pixel tracking, and and hopefully everyone's connected to the API, but it, there's there's just so many issues there. On top of that, we've also noticed we, we've taken we've actually ran a test because we knew iOS was coming for about a year, mm-hmm. right? And so what we did is we we got um, half of our clients together, and basically they all agreed that we would continue spending the exact same that we have been over the past year into this year. Others wanted to make adjustments due to performance that they were seeing in the platform, right? So a lot of them spending less. Whereas we're spending the same, no matter what comes through, right? Past you know about three months, no matter what results we see, we're just keep pushing through. But how we measure is with our marketing efficiency rate and our MER on the back end. So looking at overall revenue divided by overall spend across all channels, right? What does that look like? And in fact, it has stayed the same. It has followed the exact same trajectory as it did last year, which is so crazy to me, especially in a year which is a little different too, right? Where we actually have. A, a, a back to school season now this year as opposed to last year I think retailers lost something like 60% and all that went to Amazon but it, it, it's it's so interesting to sort of see all these factors come into place and I think over the long term we'll, we'll sort of get back into better shape um, I think right now it's just a lack of trust right it's like how do I know? We, we've we've had it so good for the past, you know, however many years, right? We get to see everything in front of us, and now it's like, oh, you know, kind of kind of making guesstimations on what we should do next. And so, you know, through that process too, I think moving into the rest of the year, that's really what it's going to be. And so, Q4 is going to be interesting because you know, big brands are just going to unload a ton of money and a ton of cash. So, you get you kind of have to keep up. But hey, I wanted to thank you, Jeet, for coming on today. Um, how can people find you if they want to reach out and chat with you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'd say I'm most active probably on Instagram. So if people want to just reach me out on reach out to me on Instagram, my personal Instagram is at the Jeet Banerjee, which is spelled T-H-E-J-E-E-T-B-A-N-E-R-J-E-E. And uh, yeah, no, definitely. Thanks for having me. It was great. Awesome, man. Hey, it was great talking to you. All right, everyone. Talk to you all later. Bye.